Do you ever have a great pairing like coffee and a knob of bread? Or Topo Chico sparkling water and Takis? And it just makes each part taste different, maybe even better than they would on their own? This is Juxtapose, the podcast where we bring you two tasty pieces of art to see what they're like together. I'm your host, B. Forkin. And I'm Sarah Peacher. Let's dig in. Today, I'm bringing to the table Sandra Cisneros' poetry collection, Woman Without Shame slash Mujer Sin Vergüenza. So many people may know Cisneros for her book, The House on Mango Street, which was published in 1984 and follows the story of a 12-year-old Chicana girl growing up in the Hispanic quarter of Chicago. A lot of people have probably encountered this book in elementary school, high school, maybe college, um, and her book, Caramello, is also well-known. I'm a little ashamed to say it, but I've not read all of either of those books, um, though I have read an excerpt of The House on Mango Street. Part of what actually made me want to pick up Cisneros' poetry collection is that the last time she published a book of poetry was back in 1994, 10 years after The House on Mango Street. And that one was titled Loose Woman, and she spent plenty of time focusing on her fiction and nonfiction, and I wanted to see how this collection shaped up because of all of her other work. I was just really intrigued to read the poetry of someone who's uh, really well known for her prose. I think it's always really interesting to study that like crossover space. I will point out that she has been awarded a Ruth Lilly Prize for Poetry, though, after the publication of this collection that I'm talking about today, which emphasizes that she should be celebrated for her poetry, too, and that's part of why I wanted to bring it to the table. And uh, because of that prize, that's part of why I picked it up, because her name has been brought up alongside poetry uh, in my mind more recently. So growing up in Chicago herself, Sandra spoke to her mom in English and her dad in Spanish, which informs her writing today in this frequent melding of both languages. This book of poetry that we're looking at today actually also comes in a Spanish version, translated by Liliana Valenzuela. Uh, In an interview with NPR, Sandra talked about how the syntax of Spanish has informed the dialogue she wrote in English in The House on Mango Street. So even while she writes in English, her bilingual upbringing informs her writing choices. And that's pretty clear in this collection as well. A few poems I'm going to bring up. This first one, Tea Dance, Provincetown, 1982 begins in a specific scene or a frequently repeated scene from Sandra's life at that time where she goes to a tea dance. And these originated as Sunday afternoon events where single gay men could meet one another over a cup of tea. Clearly in this poem, it refers to a more vibrant party taking place at what she calls a boy bar where she's the only woman in the room. She's been invited into this space by her bi lover in his last summer being bi, as she says in the poem, and she weaves that relationship throughout the poem as well in a really beautiful way. It's through her experience being the only woman at these parties and later the only woman uh, tanning topless at a beach where gay men hang out 
that she slowly learns how to become a woman without shame. And that's because she doesn't have to fear any eyes staring her body down, but she's also not alone through all of this. There's a really interesting stanza where she also gives us a bit of a language lesson saying she's not una sin vergüenza, she, uh, which she translates to shameless woman and also has a similar vibe to scoundrel. Uh, but instead, she's una sin vergüenza, woman without shame. I also really love her subtle use of the tools of poetry like rhyme and alliteration. You really don't notice them unless you read the poem out loud and listen in closely. The music of the tea dances, which is the background to her self-discovery, makes its way into the language of the poem in this way. She leaves us with a somewhat ominous turn at the end of the poem, pointing out how these memories are from before the AIDS crisis, which had a huge impact on these spaces uh, that were so integral to her becoming a woman without shame. The second poem that I really loved from this collection is Having recently escaped from the maws of a deathly life, I am ready to begin the year anew. I love the, uh, the rhythm of that title itself. This poem as also somewhat indicated by the title, reads like a series of New Year's resolutions, but Sandra provides a twist on those by listing unexpected resolutions steeped in the specificity of her life. She opens by saying she will treat herself to a chocolate eclair for New Year's, which is very clearly opposing the health trends that arise along with those health re- resolutions <laughs> in January. She also talks about a friend's mother whose doctor told her to stop eating salami And that friend's mother says life might not be worth living without salami, uh, which I agree. (laughs) The stanzas that follow those two are all about sitting down, resting, and then what follows that is about pushing away toxic folks while bringing herself closer to good folks. Those are the only bits of work mentioned really at all in the poem, and it's a different kind than what capitalism would probably want from us in our resolutions. Uh, It would want us to be as productive as possible rather than uh, making resolutions to rest more fully. All of this solidifies that what the best improvements for Sandra at 56 when she wrote this was to enjoy good food, enjoy life, rest, and keep allying herself with those questioning the power structures that fail to keep us from being able to do those things she listed first. Part of why I selected these two poems, the first one I actually ended up doing an imitation of during grad school as part of my thesis, and it was a really great opportunity for me to, for me to talk about queer spaces that I've been in, uh, but my version of that includes me being a bi woman who experiences bi erasure a lot, and sometimes that happens in queer spaces. So my version of that poem uh, definitely took a little bit of a different turn, but it was such a good way for me to get into thinking about this party scene and where do I fit in that party? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, so today I'm bringing to the table the contemporary painter Jabalala Self is a contemporary painter who centers the black female body in her work. In an article published in Cultured Magazine, Self has been described as, quote, one of the most exciting and inventive figurative painters working today, particularly for her expressive and sensual self-actualizing representations of black women. 
Self is from Harlem, New York, and lives and works there today. She studied at both Bard College for her undergraduate degree and then received her MFA from the Yale School of Art. So she works across mediums, including painting, printmaking, sculpture, collage, sewing, and installation. And she depicts figures that both embrace and reject stereotypes and fantasies surrounding Black women's bodies in particular. When interviewed about her work, she has said that the Black female body doesn't have enough representation. The representations that had previously existed didn't encompass the full nuance and complexity that she wanted to see. Depiction of sexuality is also a theme in her work. In the same article published in Cultured Magazine, the writer states, quote, Ownership over one's own sexuality is not traditionally bestowed upon black women in American society. Historically, her sexuality has been weaponized against her, debasing her into overly promiscuous and sexually objectified shadow of her full self. Self's figures take control over their bodies, stripping away prejudice, racism, and ideologies of black inferiority through defiant acts of self-love. In an interview with Self, Self said that she creates her work because, again, she wanted more images of black women represented. She has said that a lot of images are too narrow and they don't reflect the reality of black women's experiences. By creating her work on the black female body, she feels she's filling a void for imagery and a void for a narrative. She wants the body to be acknowledged on her own terms. When asked in an interview if her work is political, she said it's political because it's asking to depoliticize the body. So I learned about this artist a few years ago when she created and showed the Bodega Run series. I've never had the opportunity to see the paintings or that installation in person, but the photographs of the images and paintings, like honestly, they just like leapt off of the page and like I immediately just like fell in love with them. What drew me to her work was the central nature of the body in this public space of the bodega. I love the use of bright colors and the centralization of the intimate areas of the woman's body, but also showing these characters engaging in just like an everyday interaction, like picking up something from the bodega. So when researching for this episode, I learned more about the bodega as, its play, as a place and its role within neighborhoods. So they're specific to New York City kind of corner store that were primarily owned by Puerto Ricans and later multiplied during the 1960s and 70s during an influx of immigration from the Caribbean and Latin America. I learned that bodega is a Spanish word and that it has these different meanings of wine cellar, storeroom, or grocery store. Originally, these shops were opened in low-income and middle-class neighborhoods catering to Spanish-speaking residents by offering items not readily found in mainstream grocery stores at the time. Today, however, there's thousands of bodegas in New York City and include items like gum, water, lottery ticket, cat food, etc. The bodegas are still owned predominantly by people of color and tend to be family owned and operated. Bodegas also function as social spaces where people from the neighborhoods share gossip and discuss the news. Self grew up in Harlem and is familiar with the bodegas within the New York City landscape. So here's some information about the Bodega Run series. So it was an installation and immersive art experience meant to emulate the experience of going to a bodega. 
The viewer is met with iconic images of a bodega such as neon signs advertising an ATM, lotto tickets. The walls of the gallery were wallpapered with imagery of the kinds of things you'd buy at a bodega. She created then a series of paintings and sculptures as well of the characters typically found within these corner shops. On the one hand, the art installation is meant to pay an homage to the bodega as an essential aspect to the financial independence of many immigrant families, while also asking the viewer to stand by these neighborhood institutions at a time when gentrification and rising rents are causing them to be replaced by chain stores. Mm -hmm. So Self recognizes the bodega as a microcosm of larger changes within urban development and the financial systems that support it which are making it more and more difficult for independent business owners to compete. So this pressure has led to the diversification of what it can offer, and the bodega has survived by exploiting vulnerabilities, selling common indulgences like lottery tickets, tobacco products, and highly processed junk foods that contribute directly to poor health and obesity. Self describes the bodega as, quote, a lighthouse in an ocean of gentrification, a relic from times past. The bodega is and was a space created for people of color by people of color to serve the needs of communities of color. While Self's characters are visually dynamic and beautifully rendered in colorful, celebratory figuration, what sets them apart is, in fact, their ordinariness. We see images of buying laundry detergent and indulgences like cigarettes. They are people whose everyday lives, self argues, are worthy of presentation and contemplation. And self has said that she's committed to representing black figures as poised, confident, and self-possessed, an ideological position shared by other artists of her generation. So my first question to you is you talk about how self's main mission is to try to encompass the full nuance and complexity of black folks and other people of color in their spaces that nuance and complexity i feel like starts to reach into the materials that she selects and the type of art that she makes can you speak to that a little bit more yes okay so her choice of material she identifies herself as a painter however she never limits herself to just paint when she's creating her works so the choice of material and the process that she uses to go about creating these figures is meant to mirror the complexity of the characters Mm -hmm. so they're mixed media she uses paint but she also uses fabric and she sews them some of the fabrics together and the seam is visible to the viewer and that's also meant to communicate the ways in which we're constructed and that mm. we're all our identities are also um like a work in progress and they're in the act of becoming mm-hmm. and they're constructed like we can see them that has such interesting overlaps with sandra cisneros's poetry especially in this collection of her the entire collection is she's labeled it with that woman without shame a lot of the poems that she has selected to be a part of this collection are about her pushing against things that are intended to make her shameful. Those like exter- external viewers that see her and see like, oh, you are too this, you're too that, or like you're not enough of this, not enough of, enough of that. And she pushes against that with a lot of the poems that she writes. So I think that's a really interesting 
yes. overlap between the two. Yes, work. absolutely. What I love about them both is just this commitment of being um, like no one can make them be ashamed, especially of like their sensuality and their desires. What I loved about the second poem that you selected was that I'm going to indulge in my desires. I'm going to indulge in my pleasures because that is what it is to be alive. Yeah. And you're not going to take that from me. And I feel like that's also present in self's work, especially the images of the, the female body. Mm-hmm. And the, it's, they're so sensual. Yes. And they're just like in this way that's like so empowered. It's like Ugh. expressing a right to pleasure. Yeah. And that's present in the everyday, the like mundane, the normal, the bodega run. Like I am here not just to exist, but also to seek and have pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. To take up space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But going back to some of Self's materials too, she also works in sculpture. And she said that she works in that medium as well because it, takes up space in the gallery and forces the viewer to see it and interact with its space within the in the room. So I thought that was really powerful. Like every choice that she makes points to the message that she's trying to convey. Absolutely. Which brings me to my second question actually of as I was looking at self's work, especially the reconstructed bodega, mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about how that is an experiential work as well. And I don't know if you could speak a little bit more on that too, of like what she seems to be trying to create for her viewer by having a space that they are enveloped in. So like the bodega is an everyday experience for a lot of people in New York City, but especially the communities where they kind of were born out of. Absolutely. So it's not like, you know, a special experience, I guess, to like go to the bodega. In some ways, she's elevating the spaces that those communities are familiar with. So if people who are, are part of those communities encounter her work, they start to view their everyday space in a new way. Yes. But also it brings in your white audience yes. who may have a fleeting relationship with the bodega and says, like, actually, this is a sacred space for us mm-hmm. in that sense. And they experience it in a whole new way, too, in a way that helps them understand why the bodega matters a little yeah. bit more. I think it puts it into context, especially, like, I lived in New York City. Like, I know I've had experience, like, going to the bodega. However, I didn't have all of the understanding of the historical context of the bodega and what the word even meant. Like, that was my ignorance. I didn't know that it was... Same. Yeah, yeah. I'll acknowledge that I was also ignorant. Yeah. And I'm really <laughs> glad to be able to learn about it through this episode in particular. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So, um, and it's like about an erasure, too. Um, a lot of the bodegas are getting um, erased, mm-hmm. and part of their erasure Erasing in a bodega isn't just erasing um, a space, it's also erasing communities and erasing the people who occupy that space. So you're erasing people when you take away something that is essential to the neighborhood. Yeah. So this is your sign to go support your local (laughs) (laughs) family-run convenience store of any kind in any city that you're in because 
they need your support. They do. <laughs> and I think that's an interesting crossover back with Cisneros in the second poem, pushing back against this uh, culture of super productivity, like try to make as much money as possible, make your New Year's resolutions or your goals about like being as successful as possible in terms of capitalism. But she's pushing against that. And I think we can do that in multiple avenues through supporting local businesses through pushing back against being so, so productive and actually actively taking our rest when we need to. So I think that's a cool. That is really cool. Cool overlap. There. Yes. Agreed. I just want to, I didn't write this. I wrote like little fragmented notes here about the concept of voyeurism because that's another element mm-hmm. of her work because she has this um, work that she creates and it has, um, all of the work is meant to be like in conversation with each other. She has this one work where it's a, a male figure and half of the like body has cloth on it and the other half is a mirror mm. and it um shows one of the other works of art in a new light when you see it reflected in the mirror interesting yeah and so she was talking about voyeurism um being a huge part of the work because of the very nature of the subject which is femaleness and blackness that it's mm-hmm. constantly under a gaze mm-hmm. One final thought before I close out this episode. I realized there was an overlap again with Sandra Cisneros after what B just said about voyeurism and also the male gaze. And that just made me think again of the first poem that I brought up by Sandra and just how she was describing getting out from under the male gaze, even though she was still in male dominated spaces, is a really key part to her becoming a woman without shame. And I thought that was really interesting that both self as an artist and Sandra are exploring the male gaze and what it means to be under it and what it means to try to come out from underneath it in order to be women who can exist in the world in either a more comfortable way or even in a truly joyful and pleasurable way. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Sandra Cisneros's Woman Without Shame and Shabalala Self's work, especially the Bodega series. Please check out our website at the link in the description for more information about this episode. If you have feedback or a pairing that you're dying for us to talk about, send us a message over on our website as well. We'll be back again in a couple weeks with another episode. Thank you.